This is multiple nights of failure and, 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 and crying and tears and blood and all these things. I will say that's where it started, but then I did take a dark turn. And this is where the tears come in, crying and confused and praying, thinking, well, God's obviously not the author of failure. It doesn't come easily. It is a hard thing to do, but I'm telling you, it is life-altering and it becomes a superpower. Young women are under attack yep. deeply. Yep. Your men are under attack too in different ways, but young women are under attack in very insidious ways because it's subtle. Bruce Lawn. Chosen Khan, how are you guys feeling? Yeah, you guys aren't tired, are you? Make some noise one time. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Ruslan. I am a YouTuber, and I am ecstatic to be sitting down with the one, the only, Mr. Dallas Jenkins. One time for Dallas. Let me, he, he didn't plan this, but let me just say, uh, Amanda and I made sure that he was here this weekend because he is doing some extraordinary work for the kingdom. It's a great YouTube channel every single day. I watch it several times a week. And uh, he takes you deeper into culture, deeper into art and, and, and politics, but through a biblical lens and doing it like this cool. Like, it's not typically <laughs> cool to do that kind of stuff. And he's like conservative theologically. He's trying to make sure that you are seeing the Bible as it's supposed to be seen, but seeing through, the, through a modern lens. And uh, so we are, I, I'm really honored that he's here. So let's make sure that he feels welcome. Thank you. This is Ruslan. Wow, thank you. Um, all right, so, so this conversation is going to be about God's dream for our life versus our dreams for our life. It's going to be about doing things God's way with God's godly ambition versus selfish worldly ambition. And I think a lot of the stuff that we hear pushed to us from culture is follow your passions, follow your dreams, what is on your heart to do. And oftentimes my dream Dallas, I don't know if you know this about me. Plan A was for me to be a professional basketball player. I did not know that about you because okay. I've looked at you. And, yeah. uh, well, I wouldn't well, have. I'm, I'm also five foot ten in exactly. Armenian. Yeah. And there's never been an Armenian that's made it to the NBA. Yeah. And even if we did, we would we would never take the the jumpsuits off. My people <laughs> like sweat sweatsuits and tracksuits way too much. Right. Right. But I grew up hearing a lot of this, right? Follow your passion. You could be anything you want to be. You could just put your mind to it. And I think sometimes young people, millennials, Gen Xers, uh, we, we, that, that could be a false premise, right? And I, what I love about your journey specifically is that there's, this, there's, there's been this thing of, of you genuinely taking your time, your talent, your treasure, and placing it at the feet of Jesus and allowing God to do the promoting, Right. And I love that. So I want to I want to go back a little bit. Right. Uh, many people may not know, but your father is a prolific author in his own right. Right. Um, yeah. I think they know. <laughs> Watching at home, you might not know. The Left Behind series. And so as you were growing up, were you involved in that entire process? How involved were you? Yeah. And the second part of the question is, did the desire to filmmake ever come from wanting to create visuals for your dad? Oh, that's a really interesting question. So uh, when I was growing up, my dad, also, he wrote many books before Left Behind came out. And so I, I was certainly part of a storytelling family. Uh, 
the, the storytelling gene was very much inside of me. Um, but I, I had no author, I did, you know, I, I had no desire to be an author. Um, but it was when I was in middle school that he introduced me to movies, where he, I'd grown up seeing only, you know, at most, like G-rated family films once a, once a month. I mean, maybe I watched Saturday morning cartoons. Otherwise, it was Davy and Goliath and uh, like church basement videos and you know, the occasional Disney film. And it was when he, when I got old enough, and he said, all right, now it's time for you to see some great movies. I'm a movie buff. So he starts showing me The Godfather and Bonnie and Clyde. And then I saw a movie called One Floor with the Cuckoo's Nest. And One Floor with the Cuckoo's Nest with Jack Nicholson, there's a scene where Jack Nicholson gets, de um, gets denied the opportunity to watch the World Series inside this um, mental uh, institution. And he's so mad about it, and so he goes over to a blank television and he starts broadcasting a fake World Series game to get excited. And it's this really moving scene, and all the other inmates start, you know, standing around him and cheering and cheering and cheering. And I'm I'm, I'm up off my, my off the couch. I'm like standing up. I'm so excited because at the time I'd wanted to be a sports broadcaster. That was my thing, and uh, so I was really enjoying the scene. And I thought, whatever that is, mm -hmm. I want to do that. Mm -hmm. I want to. Uh, put into people the kind of emotional response that I'm having right now. And I remember thinking at the time, you know what, that's funny because uh, I'd love to do it with my faith. I'd love to imbue my faith into this storytelling medium, but yeah. there's no examples of that to follow. Why hasn't that been done? Why aren't there movies and TV shows out there that I could watch that reflect my faith? So it wasn't for my dad's stuff, but it was for what my dad was doing, which was my dad's passion is to use the medium and the art of writing to illuminate Jesus. And I thought, yeah, I want to do something like that. And that's where that media side first came in. Now, the first opportunity that I had was just out of college. When I was in college with the Left Behind books, that's when they started to blow up. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is my dad was the same age that I am now wow. when the Left Behind series started to wow. explode. Yeah. So I'm sitting in college, and I'm starting to see people talk about these books, and I'm, and, and I'm reading them, and I'm excited. And a small little production company in Kentucky uh, pursued the, the movie rights. And so they got the movie rights to Left Behind, and my dad said, you know, my son is an aspiring filmmaker, and uh, so if there's anything in there for him, it would be great. And so I came on board when I graduated. I moved to Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, Amanda and I got married right after she, yeah, Louisville. Uh, my, uh, Amanda and I got married right after she graduated from college, so we, our first few years were in Louisville working for a small little production company that was developing the Left Behind movie. And about three years into it, I started just as a low-level secretary. I mean, I was just running packages to the mailbox. I was uh, taking notes. I was doing all that stuff just to try to learn, trying to work my way up if I could. And right about the time that they were going to get ready to make the movie, um, I actually left because um, we just thought the movie wasn't turning, was going to turn out the way we had hoped. And so my dad and I started our own thing. Mm -hmm. So that was, I was 25 years old at the time when I wow. left uh, that, that small wow. company. So you're a part of that. You guys bounce because you didn't feel like it was matching the vision. Yeah. And then at, w at what point do you start kind of getting your next breakthrough in terms of filmmaking? Like, like what was that gap? Because I think people see what you're doing in The Chosen and, and, and it's like, a, oh, this was overnight. Yeah. It, it wasn't overnight. Oh, gosh. This is decades in the yeah. trenches. Yeah. This is multiple nights of failure and, 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 and crying and tears and blood and all these things. So you're 25, you get your first shot and you're really just paying your dues. Yeah. When was the next kind of like, ooh, okay, yeah. we, could, we could taste it? So about three and a half years into it, I had definitely paid some dues, and I had definitely kind of learned in the trenches. And so 
uh, when I left that company, my dad and I started our own thing, and he had now, because of the books, had been so successful by this point, we're talking tens of millions sold, he now had the resources financially to do something ourselves. And we noticed that there's a lot of people in Hollywood talking about making movies. There's, especially in the faith world, there was a lot of like faith-based filmmakers who were saying, we're developing this, we're trying to get, uh, this actor is reading it, but there wasn't a lot of movies actually being made. And so we just thought, we just need to make something. And that's, at, at worst case scenario, even if it's not successful, we'll learn. So at 25 years old, my dad uh, and, 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 so, and a few other people financed uh, a movie called Hometown Legend. It was a high school football film set in the South, a high school football faith film before they were cool. There ended up being like 10 of them after that. But this was back in 2000. And uh, yeah, it was just around 2000. And so I produced it. I didn't direct it. Produced a small football film uh, set in Alabama. And uh, when we were finished, it actually turned out pretty well. And Warner Brothers, one of the biggest studios in the world, picked it up for distribution and got it all over the world. Not in theaters, but in, uh, to DVD and in, in certain channels. So that was our learning experience. And it, it didn't make money. Uh, we lost a little bit of money on it. But it was just like, a, we just got to make something. We start, just got to start doing it. And I started doing some more short films. I directed a couple myself. And so that was, again, even when we had the opportunity to make something um, real, we still st were starting really, really slow, really, really small. It, it seems like there was a, a desire for you to fall in love with the process yeah. of filmmaking and not with the potential outcome of the success. Yeah. And, and it seems like the more you leaned into the process and it, and, it, and it became an infinite game. It wasn't a, if I do this, then I'll be successful, but I'm in it for the long haul. Yeah. then over time the opportunities compounded. Is that, is that fair? Just just loving? I will say that's where it started, but then I did take a dark turn. And I don't mean dark in a scandalous way, but when I was making that movie and Warner Brothers saw a, a screener of it and got interested, then I'm going, okay, all right. First movie out of the gate, a big studio wants it. This is what I've been dreaming of. So for the previous several years, I had been working hard thinking yeah, eventually I'm going to get my shot. And that's why I've talked about this, about practicing Academy Award speeches in, my, in front of my mirror. And uh, I talked about uh, dreaming of being in the top five at the box office. And so uh, 25, 26 years old is when that really started to take hold, take, take root. That was my reason for being. I'm going to be successful. But I, I told myself the reason I want to be successful is so that I can share God's truth. You know, that's, that's really what I want. If the more successful I am, the wider that uh, these stories can get and the more impact that I can have. That's what I told myself. But I was really looking for that success. You wanted that success because you wanted the validation from the yes. world. Yeah. Would that be fair? Yeah. Affirmation, I think. Yeah. Validation, legitimacy. Yeah. Um, I was doing an independent film, uh, you know, outside of the system. And, uh, you know, I'm like, well, this is fine, but eventually I want to be taken seriously. Eventually, and taken seriously means awards and, you know, box office. That's what's going to legitimize me in the eyes of, of the world. And I really cared deeply about that. How did that shift? How did that, how did that I need to be affirmed and legitimized by the world shift? Because I, I, I don't want to spoil the story, but it yeah. seems like a shift came. And then the promotion came, yeah. right? Humility precedes honor. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I think also crisis is usually the uh, forerunner to revival. Uh, most revivals are preceded by some sort of crisis. Well, for me, it was a long time. I mean, it took me a while. That taste of the, the first movie and then short films, and then I did another movie, and then I made And it was uh, 2000 
um, uh, when I decided, uh, no, no, sorry, 2010, when I decided to have a shift towards doing movies that were even more explicitly faith-based. So that was kind of that first step. But even then, it was still about the money, the, the opportunity, the box office, the awards. Um, this was just one more step to get there. The turn came, uh, unfortunately, took a long time. It wasn't until 2017 that uh, the turn came and it, it started out because I finally got the opportunity I'd been looking for. Finally, instead of doing a movie outside the system, mm. I finally got legitimized and some of the biggest producers in Hollywood wanted to make my movie. So you've got Jason Blum, who's the producer of some of the most successful horror films of all time, including recently, even just The Exorcist is a Blumhouse movie. So he's done uh, uh, Insidious and Sinister and movies you've never heard of because you're Christians. But... <laughs> hugely successful horror films and his his business was lower budget films and then making tons of money and he was very successful he won academy awards he was huge and uh he saw a short film i made for my church and it was uh called the ride this was done back in like 2012 yeah thank you hey we all got four of you ones. who've seen it no but uh no but this, it's, it's actually still on amazon i believe but anyway i did this short film for my church this is before any of the Jesus stuff I started doing, but it was a uh, it turned out really, really well. And he saw it, and he said, I, "I'm." He was interested in doing faith-based projects because he saw a similar niche opportunity for an audience that could be served. And then WWE, the wrestling company, um, World Wrestling Entertainment, they also had a film division, and they were interested in the faith space similarly because of niche marketing. And so um, at, this, at the time, I'm working at this church in Elgin, Illinois. I'm making short films at the time. And uh, they saw my short film, loved it, wanted to be in business with me, told, showed them the script that I wanted to make. They loved that too. And so a horror film company, a wrestling company, and a church in Elgin, Illinois, <laughs> all combined to make The Resurrection of Gavin Stone in 2017. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> and... Uh, I'll never forget. It was um, it was in uh, 2017, uh, January 20th, that uh, the resurrection of Gavin Stone was released nationwide, and I've got a big time Hollywood producer and Universal Studios got involved to release it nationwide, and everything was exactly what I'd wanted. And these companies wanted to make more movies with me. Mm. They're thinking, let's do five movies over the next 10 years. And, uh, and it's going to be faith-based films. And I'm, I'm with Academy Award winners. And so now I have finally arrived. I have achieved the validation that I wanted. Mm. And on that day when the movie released in theaters, um, the numbers come in around noon because they start coming in from the East Coast. And it's a math equation. You can judge, know how the numbers are going to be for the rest of the weekend. And in fact, typically for the next few weeks, just based on those early numbers. And it was a complete bomb. A total failure, way lower than their lowest projections, and within two hours, I went from being a director with a very bright future to being a director with no future, because all of those companies that had been involved and excited and wanting to work with me in the future all said, hey, we appreciate you, this was a good try, but we're going to go back to doing what we do best, horror films and wrestling, mm -hmm. and uh, this faith thing, faith thing didn't work out for us, and I'm home alone with my wife, with Amanda, and um, we're crying, this is where the tears come in crying and confused and praying, thinking, well, God's obviously not the author of failure, and I'm failing big time. This must not have been a calling of God. I must have missed it. I must have been wrong. I must have chosen the wrong profession. And so we're sitting there at home going, I guess I'm never going to do this again. I guess this is it. 
And here's the answer to your question. In that moment, when God then laid it on my wife's heart, the, feeding, the story of the feeding of the 5,000, read the feeding of the 5,000, read the feeding of the 5,000. She didn't know why, but she decided to read the feeding of the 5,000. And so we read that together. And we're trying to figure out what we could glean from it. And in that moment, we thought, oh, here's what's interesting. Jesus is the reason those people were so hungry. He brought them to the place where they needed a miracle. Come on. He'd been talking for three days. It was his fault that they were so hungry. He made them hungry so that the only thing left to feed them was a miracle. Yeah. He wasn't surprised by it. When the disciples came to him and said, we're, we, we need food, we need to send them home. He said, we can't send them home. They're going to be hungry. They're, they're going to faint along the way. That's how hungry they are. He wasn't surprised. That's why we portrayed it that way in the episode. He brought them to that place of hunger. And then the miracle came. Well, here we are, hungry. We're sitting at home alone, desperate. I know what he's going to do. He's going to do a miracle. He's going to turn these box office numbers around. He's going to multiply. <laughs> he's going to do this math. He's going to do what he does. And tonight we're going to be able to tell this story to all those godless people in Hollywood who have yeah. never seen anything like this before. And that night the numbers got even worse. <laughs> And it was like God saying, that's not what I have for you. That's not the lesson of that story. We couldn't quite figure it out. And that's when, as, as many here know, that's when at 4 o'clock in the morning, I'm typing out a 15-page memo. We call it a post-mortem, which is, we've just failed, so how do we make sure we don't do it again? And I was taking the blame on myself, yeah. which I think is a good thing. I think yep. it's good to say, what have I done wrong? What did I miss? But I'm 15 pages. I'm analyzing, analyzing, because that's what I do well. I problem solve. This isn't going to happen again. And in the middle of that, a Facebook message pops up. And it's from someone that I've never met, someone who was uh, at 4 o'clock in the morning for some reason. And, and, and it didn't say hi. It didn't say hello. All it said was, remember, your job is not to feed the 5,000. It's only to provide the loaves and fish. Mm. And I'm thinking for a second, yeah, well, I wasn't clapping. I was, yeah. I was scared. I'm thinking, was, my, was, was the computer recording? That's spooky. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't tell anyone that God had us in this story all day long, and so I'm wondering where he heard this. Yeah. So my first question is, uh, what were you doing up at uh, 4 in the morning? Yep. And he says, oh, I'm, I'm on Romania. I'm on a different time zone. And I said, can I ask you why you said that just now? And he goes, oh, oh, that wasn't me. God told me to tell you that. And we brought him to the feeding of the 5,000 when we filmed that scene. Come on. So th those of you who were there was the first time we met. Yeah. Because I wanted him to see. I wanted him to see his efforts, not to spoil the story. But, uh, but we talked that night, and he shared later that God had put on his heart, tell Dallas, this, tell Dallas this. And he's like, I don't want to do that. I, this is condescending after he just had a failure. But that moment, that moment yeah. when God reached through my own brokenness and said, I don't want you thinking about results anymore. I don't want you thinking about success anymore. I don't want you thinking about numbers anymore. And in this business, that's really hard. That's it. I mean, you're, yeah. a, you're a performer, uh, you're a YouTuber, you're a musician. And uh, if, if you're not getting the likes, if you're not getting the numbers, if you're not getting the sales, you're not getting more work. Yeah. And uh, that was, that was w what I was motivated by. And so in that moment, I surrendered. And I said, okay, I get it. Mm. And I truly was humbled. Yeah. And I, in, in that moment, I truly changed. Like I gave up everything that I had wanted. And I said, okay, God, okay, okay. If you never want to make me to make another movie... I'm good with that. I just want to be in your will. I just want to provide my loaves and fish. And I wish that I had been 
I wish that that had happened when I was in my 20s. Yeah. I wish it didn't take me 20 years yeah. of my career and 40 years of my life to learn that lesson because it was so painful. And I believe God, in his graciousness, gave me a taste of the Hollywood thing. He got me to the edge of it so that I could see it, so that I wouldn't wonder about it anymore, so that I wouldn't chase it anymore. And then he just crashed it on purpose. He did get me hungry on purpose for the miracle to, to come. And that's when we surrender. That's when Amanda and I got low. Yeah. That's good. It reminds me of, of, of the children of Israel wandering in the desert for 40 years, a journey that could have taken him nine days. That's really right? good. I hadn't thought of that. That's, that was 40 years when that happened. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I want you, I just want to pause here for a moment, Dallas, because I feel in my spirit that there's, there's people here that they're at that moment. They're at that moment. And they may be there in the room, maybe they're watching online, but, but, but they feel like, I, I tried to do it in the name of God, but I came, I came to the end of it and I failed. Yeah. And, and, they're, and they're trying to make sense of it, right? Could you just speak into that? Just speak some hope yeah. into that moment where you were there and everything crashed. And, 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 and what did you feel and what advice would you have for folks that are there right now? Yeah, what's interesting is um, a couple months later after that, I gave a talk at a film conference, and it was a room like this, and there was probably 700, 800 people there. And uh, they had had me be a keynote speaker for, because it's a, it's a film conference, and I was a filmmaker and a Christian, and so uh, they had me speak and you know, give advice and whatnot. And I got up and I said what I'm about to tell you now, which is that I said, listen, I don't have advice about how to be successful. I don't have advice about how to be a good filmmaker, because I'm coming off of the biggest failure of my career. But here's what I can tell you. I can tell you that I have more joy in my life right now than I've ever had, and at least in my career, because of the fact that I truly have embraced this notion that it's not my job to feed the 5,000. The multiplication is not up to me. When I make my loaves and fish, and if I make them as good as they possibly can be, because we still are responsible for those five loaves and two fish. Yep. Jesus could have fed the multitudes without it. He always allows us to participate. In fact, Pastor Levi Lusco preached that this morning. I didn't ask him to. It was so cool. He was talking about how he doesn't do the things for you that you can do for yourself. So he said, I need five loaves and two fish. He said, I need someone to unwrap Lazarus's clothes. All of that. But in that moment, if I'm focused on the best five loaves and two fish that I can, and I hand them to God, and he deems them worthy of acceptance, the transaction is over. Everything after that is not up to you. It would be crazy for the boy to, who, who provided the five loaves and two fish to go home to his parents and say, Mom and Dad, I fed 5,000 people today. Of course, that would be ludicrous. He just provided his loaves and fish. Now, there are times when you provide your loaves and fish, you do what you just said. You do your best. It's in the name of God. You hand it to God. He says thank you. And that's it. Nothing happens. Yep. There's no growth. There's no success. In fact, maybe there's even failure. Maybe it's pulled away. And you're in that moment that I was at with Amanda, and we're home alone, and you're thinking, am I not supposed to do this? Now, I don't have an answer for that specifically, meaning I don't know what career you're called to or what God's calling is for your life. But I would beg you to learn what I needed to learn, what took me a long time to learn, which is to stop thinking about five-year plans. That's what they tell you in business school, and that's what they tell you at conferences. They say, Have a, what's your five-year plan? Where do you want to be in five years? Start taking steps towards this level of success. And as Phil Vischer, the creator of VeggieTales, who also had his thing taken away from him because he started thinking too much about himself, 
He said, where you're at in five years is none of your business. If you can get on that plan, I'm telling you, if you can make that plan real where you go, I don't care about where I'm at in five years as long as it's where God wants me. I'm going to think about today. I'm going to think about what's in front of me. I'm going to think about the loaves and fish that God has provided. It doesn't come easily. It is a hard thing to do. And if, you, and if you don't get it, God will make you get it. But I'm telling you, it is life-altering, and it becomes a superpower. Because then you go, hey, I don't really care about the likes. I don't care about the numbers because all I'm doing is my loaves and fish. And so the advice is beg God to get you on that plan. Beg God to take away from you the desire to care about anything more than that transaction, that handing over of what you've done to him, saying, I got it. All right, now what's next? Not what can this be made more into or what can be made more of. No, no. What do you have in front of me today? It, become, it, is, it is a life-altering truth that I desperately wish for you and I desperately wish I would have had it uh, before a few years ago. Wow, that's so good. You know, it, it reminds me, <laughs> this happens multiple times in the Gospels, at least twice in uh, the Gospel of Luke where the disciples are amongst themselves and they get into an argument about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And awkwardly, this happens as Jesus is telling them that he's going to go to the cross, right? And he's like, I'm going to go to the cross. And then like a fight breaks out about who, like these guys are just, oh my gosh, this is so embarrassing. I'm embarrassed for them reading that, right? And they're arguing about who's going to be in the greatest because they're expecting a political kingdom, right? And Jesus, very interestingly, he doesn't rebuke their desire for greatness the way he did with Peter when Peter tried to get in the way of the cross. Jesus redirects their desire for greatness and says, the first among you shall be the last. You want to be great, you be the biggest servant. You, you, you become childlike, right? And it, it seems like this redirection that happened in your heart, that instead of you getting rebuked and, and, and God saying, no, it's, you, you're dumb, you shouldn't have pursued filmmaking, even though there were some conflicting desires there, God takes it, he redirects you to serve people and resurrects the dream. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, he, I remember, that's beautifully said. Yeah, he said, I remember I, I talk about this now, because, of course, it's easy now to look back on it and go, oh, good. And, and, and if this was a, you know, a, a tele-evangelist sermon, it'd be like, see, God multiplied and God gives you success. As soon as you pray for it, he'll give it to you. No, this, the, uh, the, the fact that the chosen has become successful has nothing to do with, um, with, with the actual truth of what I learned several years ago. If the chosen had not been successful, I'd still be saying the exact same thing. In fact, I said it that summer when I was sharing it at the conference. And I was talking about, hey, I found this joy. I found this, I found this new vision, this new dream. And that's just to be in God's will. And that's just to provide my loaves and fish. In fact, right now, I'm working on this little short film on my, on my friend's farm in Illinois. And it's for my church. And it's called The Shepherd. And, and I don't even care where that goes. I just know that I want it to be the best. And I want it to honor God. And I want to honor his son. That's what I was talking about. And I had that joy. So. But, the, but here's what I talk about when I, sit, when I tell that story is when God first said, remember, it's not your job to feed the 5,000, he had a really tender voice. It was not rebuking like you said. It's remember, it's not your job to feed the 5,000. It's only to provide the loaves and fish. And I felt encouraged and comforted. And now that I'm up here talking to you and millions of people around the world have been blessed, now the tone of voice is a little bit different. It's remember. It's not your job to feed the 5,000. <laughs> you didn't feed the 5,000. 
You just brought the loaves and fish. And that's what I want, to, want you to avoid, and I want to make sure we avoid is, is that rebuke. Because the rebuke will come if you're not getting it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you anchored it, though, in, in the fact that the, the pathway to the flourishing was through the door of contentment. It wasn't oh, through the. Well said. It wasn't through say the that door. Again. The pathway through flourishing was through the door of contentment. Yeah. Right. That's I good. could say the pathway to prosperity. That could. But that's yeah. Not we're not going to say that. A little, a little yeah. too prosperity-ish, right? Yeah, yeah. But it was through the door of contentment. It was through you being faithful to what was in front of you, and and you did your part, and God had to do what He had to yeah. do. And I think sometimes we we try to force it. We're trying to force the hand of God instead of saying, "Let me just let me just be faithful and content right where I'm at." And let God bring the increase. Well, and a key word in what you said was flourishing. And, it, and I think it, 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 we made a little joke, but it's, it's important that he didn't say prosperity because flourishing doesn't necessarily mean financial prosperity, right. worldly success of any kind. Flourishing can be a spiritual flourishing. That's right. That oftentimes comes from suffering. Yep. It's that contentment piece. Can you be content? I mean, Pastor Levi preached about this this morning. This is so cool because he talked about the fact that can you, can you allow God to actually disappoint you sometimes? Are you okay if you're asking for a particular thing and it's not granted? Will you be okay with that even if it's disappointing? That's the contentment piece. And the contentment piece is what allows you to flourish regardless of the level of success that it is. There are people in this room and there are people in my family, there are people in our lives who will never reach what the world defines as success. But the flourishing, we have a different definition of what flourishing is. We have a different definition of what success is. And furthermore, when you do have success, so the chosen is having worldly definitions of success right now, how much do you care about it? And the beauty part is, I genuinely don't. All I care about is this. I want, when I'm doing a meet and greet and people are coming up with tears in their eyes talking about their life change, and I get to see what God's done in their hearts, that is flourishing. Yeah, that's so good. I had the amazing opportunity to speak with your wife, Amanda, earlier about the discipleship and the devotional arm of what she does. Yeah. And we talked about this a little bit backstage about how some, in the last hundred years, the creators, creatives, artists are sometimes in opposition with the shepherds and the theologians. Yeah. But I don't think people understand your heart that even though The Chosen is historic fiction and it's not there to replace the Bible, right. that your heart and your wife's heart is to bring so many people into a deeper, more robust, flourishing faith. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because sometimes this can be disconnected from the folks that are making the narrative part that's connecting emotionally with the folks that are doing the shepherding and the discipleship. And, and I don't think enough people know your heart for that and how, how complimentary you guys are, pun intended. Yeah, yeah. Well, what's, what's funny is, um, you know, we don't really care about the criticism, but sometimes I find the criticism confusing when people are talking about the fact that, oh, you know what, the chosen, it's not biblical, it's not biblical, it's, it's taking people away from the Bible, it's replacing the Bible, and of course, there's not a single person in this room, not a single person in this room who has ever thought that the chosen is a replacement for Scripture. That's right. Everyone in this room will gladly, proudly tell you... I am reading my Bible more than ever. That's right. I am brought to my Bible more than ever. That's right. Because of the chosen. And a pastor once said that sometimes people will say, uh, this pastor in California pointed out that sometimes people say, the chosen is bringing the Bible to life for me. 
It's a good, it, it's a good phrase, but I think a better, more accurate phrase is, the Bible's already been alive. The chosen can sometimes help bring you to life so that you see the Bible more clearly. Come on. And that's, that's the discipleship piece. That's what we are trying to do, is we are trying to provide a pathway, a doorway, an introduction to something that will take you deeper. The chosen is not the end game. I don't know if Amanda said this with you, but uh, we, we, we say this a lot, that the, um, the Bible studies and devotional books are not supplements to the show. Yeah. The show is a supplement to the Bible Come studies on. and to the devotional books and the Bible itself. There is scripture in the show, but the Bible studies and the devotional books, that is ultimately what we are trying to get you to, is we want you to know and love Jesus more so that you know and love his word more. Yeah. And so the fact that the creative side and the discipleship side are intertwined is not a contradiction. That's it right. used to be that way. Yep. It used to be that way that the greatest theologians were oftentimes also the greatest creators, yep. or they were working side by side. And the point of the basilicas and the point of the statues and the point of the paintings was to draw you to God, to point you to the Father. We've gotten away from that to where now it seems like, and you and I have talked about this before, you in the music business, me in the movie business, where sometimes the very fact that we're doing something in those mediums is in and of itself scary or, uh, or somehow uh, in opposition to biblical fidelity and knowing God more. And uh, that's... I think that's Satan at work yeah. trying to say, yeah, don't look over here. Uh, he's, he's using uh, Pharisees, I think, modern-day Pharisees, to keep people from things that can actually uh, uh, excite and inflame their relationship with God. That's good. I, I, I think of it this way. Oftentimes, we think as God's calling for our life or, or, or God's will for our life as a destination, as if it's a, if I just finally get to here and then I'll have arrived. But, but God's will for our life is actually in God's ways of how we are to live our life. Yeah. And God's ways are in God's word. And if we can lean into God's word, then we can discover God's ways. And then the, the will aspect is, how am I being faithful with the time, talent, and treasure in the season that I'm in? Yeah. Right? Instead of saying, I, I have to accomplish X, Y, and Z to feel like I've fulfilled my calling. No, no, no. It's about the way of God in that. Um, and I think people need that. And I think specifically Generation Z needs oh. that. Gen Z needs that. Um, you guys did an amazing, amazing mini documentary where you exposed Gen Z yeah. to the chosen. Yeah. Um, I talked to Daryl about it. I, I, I love that, that entire setup. And I think, I think Gen Z is in an interesting place. Yeah. And I, I want to hear your heart in terms of behind that specific campaign. But walking around here, I'm, I'm meeting so many young people. Yeah. Right? Like, awesome. And, and it makes me think of this, this scripture uh, in Acts where it says, the old men will dream dreams and the young men will have visions, yeah. right? So I want to hear your vision for, for Gen Z and, and, and some of the intentional things you guys have been doing and, and kind of where you think this, everything is headed right now. Yeah. Well, from the beginning, uh, that's been Daryl's heart uh, even more targeted than mine. I mean, I, I have a huge heart for Gen Z, but he from the beginning has said that's, we, we, that, that's who we've got to reach with this show. I mean, my son is, uh, you know, 22. My daughter's 20 and 19. I have a 16-year-old. I mean, my kids are in the heart of this, and I see that I am fighting the world for their souls because they are measured by 
more than ever. You don't even have to be a performer or a YouTuber to be measured by your likes and your shares and your comments. On Instagram, on TikTok, or whatever it is, uh, their value is oftentimes defined by whether or not they are getting affirmed. And I'll find out sometimes, like my daughters or sons, it's especially true of young women. Young women are under attack yep. deeply. Yep. Men are under attack too in different ways, but young women are under attack in very insidious ways because it's subtle. It's by successful influencers who are always looking perfect, always looking way too skinny, and they're saying, oh, this is how I do it, and this is how I do it, and they're not showing up. This is numbers. how I wake up every day with no makeup. Yeah, I, exactly. I look just like this, no filter. And I'm seeing my daughters... Uh, especially, that, that what they're experiencing on a daily basis is in opposition directly to what God wants for them and how God sees them and how they're supposed to find their value in God. And so that's what the chosen is trying to do so deeply, is when Jesus was talking to the disciples, he was, again, was oftentimes uh, reorienting them. He was oftentimes redirecting them. Yeah. Uh, they thought, for good things, they thought... We're going to fight a battle. We're going to win a war. We're going to overcome oppressors. And he just kept saying, no, I want your heart. I want your heart. I'm, wanting, I'm building a different kind of kingdom. And that's what we have got to communicate to Gen Z and what they have got to receive is that there is a different kind of kingdom, a different kind of success, a different kind of flourishing than anything that any of these social media pages are going to tell you. And uh, so that's what we're hoping the Chosen can continue to do is well, break through that. And what I love about everything is I'm, I'm seeing the, the five and two fish. I'm see, I see it all over, the five and two fish. And, it, and the message is really as simple as he who loses his life will gain it. Surrender everything that you have to Jesus, yeah. and you will have the abundant life that you truly seek after. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And everything in the chosen is pointing back to that. Yes. Right? And I think what's unique about it is, I, I, I'm, you know me, I'm, I'm a Bible nerd. I love theology. I love the scriptures. I, all this stuff is important, but I think there's something about the narrative side yeah. that, that hits us different. Yeah. It just it just hits us in a different way. And so again, the 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 bridge of those is beautiful. Well, and that's why Jesus did what he did. I mean, With he, the parables. The parables. I mean, it was constant. He knew, yes, there's study Torah, study Torah, go to synagogue. Jesus did it. His followers did it. But the way that he illuminated it was through stories. Let me tell you a story. Let me let me, let me tell it let me say it this way. Yep. Truly I say to you. Listen up. That's why we have Jonathan as Jesus often saying, "Listen, listen carefully." It's him saying, I know you can read, I know, you've, I know you've learned all this, but I'm going to say this in a different way. And that's what we're trying to do with the chosen, ultimately illuminating uh, the truth of God's word. Yeah. I, I want you just, as, as we wrap, I want you to just to speak a couple words of wisdom to, to the millennials, to the Gen Z, to the Gen Xers, to the creatives, to the people that, that, that have that, that, that godly ambition, right? It's not about them that they're trying to figure out. And what advice would you, would you have for them just as, as we close this time together? Yeah, I mean, I would just would say that when you are in that space, and if you do have a godly ambition, of course, that's the first step. The first step is breaking down the ego, breaking down the flesh, and truly, truly getting to a place where as long as you are pleasing God, that is all that matters, and that you're, that's where the transaction ends. That said, let's say you start to find success. Let's say that you do start to have impact. That gets dangerous, too, because even godly impact can become an idol, even godly success can sometimes become something that you get consumed with 
and it becomes something that you care more about than your personal relationship with God. Mm. God doesn't need you to have impact. He'll use you for impact. He does use all of us for impact, but you specifically, he, as we say in season two of The Chosen, he wants you. He wants you to be a follower of his, and he wants you to tell others to come and see. But if it starts getting in the way of your relationship with him, and I'm speaking this to myself right now too, if I start thinking more about how can I increase my impact and not how can I increase the depth of my knowledge of Jesus, then God will take it away. He'll say, I'll use someone else for that. But you're losing your first love. And so no matter what, no matter what you're doing, make sure that you don't lose your first love. Pray for that. Pray that God does not allow you to get wooed by the numbers and get wooed by the impact and the success, that it's humbling to you. And that's where I got to see the biggest influence my dad ever had on me was when Left Behind was exploding in success. And it didn't make him more arrogant. It made him more humble because he went, I am not good enough for this. This is way bigger than I am. And it brought him to his knees. And make sure that you are constantly being brought to your knees no matter how impactful you may be because God wants you to have him as your first love. Wow. Wow. That was amazing. All right. Well, hopefully, are you guys, you guys feel encouraged? All right. Let's thank Ruslan for being here. Let's give him a chosen welcome and a chosen thank you. Check him out on YouTube. I'm telling you, he's going to impact your life like he's impacted mine. We see according to the Bible that prayer is extremely important in terms of us being transformed from the inside out when we get aligned with God's will. For the Christians watching this channel, I want you guys to implement these spiritual disciplines in your day-to-day -day life. And the only way I've been able to do this consistently is through writing down my prayers in a prayer journal that does a few things. One, it allows me to reflect and come to God humbly and ask Him to move on my behalf. And two, it allows me to document my prayers, which ultimately helped me remember the very things that I was praying for and see the hand of God tangibly in my life when He answers them. So I would urge you, consider writing down your prayers. It could be in a blank notebook. It could even be on your phone. Or you could check out the one I personally designed and used for my own quiet time and spiritual discipline that I think would be a huge blessing. It's the exact structure and system that I've used for years to pray and be more consistent in my spiritual disciplines. You can pick yours up today by clicking the link in the pinned comment below. All right, I'll see you over there. Peace.